Hi, and welcome to Jackie Winter Gives You the Business. I'm Jeremy Wartzman, and I'm here with my co-host, Laura Chan Baker. Hello. While Laura is deep into producing our 10th season, which will be a deep dive into the business of illustration, we're going back to our beloved Open Tabs format for a ninth season, loosely based on our popular event series with the same name. For the rest of the season, Laura and myself will be coming together each week and going through some of our own open browser tabs, providing an insight into the creative industry from our unique points of view, as well as the Google search results that offer an uncomfortably intimate portrait of our inner lives, or at least mine. Using the internet as our lens, we hope to explore a variety of current events, opinions, and tools to provide thought-provoking conversation for anyone whose job it is to bring creative things to life, but mostly, it's a chance for us to talk a lot of claptrap. Laura, have you noticed that is my new thesaurus spot holder of the season? I actually hadn't, but now that I'm aware, I'm excited to see what you come up with. How are you going? Yeah, I'm good. I mean, we've talked about I moved house recently, but I used to live directly behind a cafe that had like my favorite breakfast ever. And I went back this morning to have it and it was just as good as ever, but made me sad not to be able to have it every day. Well, you know, absence makes a heart grow fonder or all, whatever. It sure you know? does. <laughs> How are you doing? Fantastic. I'm I'm fine. I hurt my back a bit and I started going swimming no. again. Yeah, no, it's a real bummer. But I mean, this actually should be my thumbs up of the week, but I have kind of something else. But at the pool, they have this thing. This is like a new thing because I haven't been to the pool in like a year or two. And like they have this thing. It's like a miniature washing machine where you put your bathers in mm-hmm. when you finish and it dries them in like two minutes. It's like a centrifuge oh. that also extracts and spins. That's very cool. I like it's that. Amazing. They, so we have been looking at buying one for camping. Anyway, very cool. This is a heavy duty. It's like a very small, compact piece of like industrial machinery. Like, oh, I don't there's know like if like powered it's- ones that are just like essentially a big salad spinner. Exactly. Wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. I'm into it. And I'm going to get started with my first link of the week. This is something I don't know about you, but like I read PDFs in my browser because I use my browser for so many different things. I view GIFs Mm. in my browser, I view images, and I also view PDFs. And there is a book that I have been reading. Wow, so many different things. Yeah, it's the salad spinner of the internet. You just put everything in and see what comes out. But I have been reading a book this last week, and this is kind of also a callback to when we were talking about naming for last week, because I'm knee deep into trying to name something at the moment. And this is kind of another interesting thing. I mean, not to put it lightly, but the whole coronavirus at the moment, you know, they gave it a name and it's COVID-19. And the thing that we named about two years ago, Corvid, the similarities are obviously so similar. And I don't know if we're going to be able to continue using the name. And funnily enough, also, the internet business Wix also launched a coding platform called Corvid right after we did it as well. It's like, which is, so you just never know what's going to come up with naming. And, and the act of naming is just so, so difficult. And I found this book, it was recommended in a few places where I was trying to do some research. It's called Don't Call It That. And it's by a writer named Eli Altman. And Eli is, you know, he's from Oakland, California. He's a writer and creative director at a naming studio called 100 Monkeys, which I got to say, not a great name as well for the studio. Um, But this is a book. It's a PDF version of a book. And I kind of think with reading electronic books, it can be really difficult with Kindle books because they have to be formatted in a certain way. And you can't really get a lot of books that are really designed, whether it's poetry, whether the type needs to be kind of set a certain way or anything kind of graphic. So I really like what Eli's done here in terms of the second edition of the book, which is Don't Call It That. It's designed and lettered by House Industries, a great design studio. And yeah, this is just an awesome book. It's about naming. It's a step-by-step workbook that walks you through the ins and outs of the naming process. And I'm quoting here. I'll just say, though, the first sentence on the site is, this is not a book about naming. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, it's about the naming process. Yes. Okay. So 
I don't understand how those two things kind of go together anyway, but it is a really good book. I'm, it's opened my eyes up to, I guess, even just looking at kind of the different ways that things are named. Like, I think like that's just kind of a big step in understanding the landscape of these are kind of the different types of names and these are how names are put together, company names, obviously. Mm. So yeah, it's a really cool book. I've got it open in my tabs. I'm working my way through it. Hopefully I'll be able to announce the results of what we're naming soon. But yeah, that's the first link for the week. Lara, what do you got? Very cool. So I, have got something that kind of made me think of you, Jeremy. I have absolutely no clue how I ended up on this guy's personal website, but it's a post from this guy, Robin, which is called an app can be a home cooked meal. And basically it's kind of telling his experience with building a custom app for his family. And he starts out, have you heard about this new app called Boop Snoop? It launched in the first week of 2020 and almost immediately it was downloaded by four people in three different time zones. In the months since, it has remained steady at four daily active users with zero churn, a resounding success, exceeding every one of its creator's expectations. And basically he just made this like very simple messaging app with and for his family. So basically, they used to use this very simple app called TapStack, which, I mean, I won't go into the details, but a very, very, very simple messaging app. And eventually that was discontinued and they knew they needed a replacement. And their first instinct was to kind of just set up a group on Instagram or WhatsApp or something. But the prospect of having their lovely family communication channels being encroached upon by all the other garbage that you know you're subjected to when you're using one of those apps just made them really sad and so he decided instead of settling for a, you know an existing messaging app he was going to build one for them and he's called it boop snoop and basically all it is is just like a camera window and kind of like you know snapchat or instagram you just capture photo or video by pressing the button but it's like full screen and then it just sends them to your family group and messages wait in the queue and they're kind of always full bleed edge to edge, no distractions, no prods to comment or share, anything like that. Once you view it, it disappears. And that's literally it. There's like no interface. There's just like a camera button and then a little badge in the corner that shows how many messages are waiting. And it's just kind of like a nice little piece about his sort of experience with the actual tech side of making it, but also the emotional side of things. And he he talks about how like when you free programming from the requirement to actually be general and professional and scalable, it becomes a totally different activity altogether. And he sort of likens it to cooking at home versus cooking in a commercial kitchen. And it's like he's saying that not only is this different activity rewarding in almost exactly the same way that cooking for someone you love is rewarding, there's also this other feeling that persists as they use the app together. And he said, you know, it's really that this messaging app he built for and with his family, and it's not going to change unless they want it to change. There's not going to be any sudden redesign. There's no flood of ads. He says no pivot to chase a user base inscrutable to us. It might go away at some point and that'll be their decision too. And it's interesting to see how people with kind of basic coding skills are using it for this sort of thing. And I just kind of thought it might be something you end up doing one day, Jeremy. Well, I think I bring that attitude to everything that we do in some ways. And I think that's one of the awesome things about how it is possible to kind of work with single developers and kind of do these really skinny type projects and kind of put them out into the world. I think we've done that in lots of ways. I think the way we use FileMaker has been a big part of that. And that's kind of what I was talking about last week about why I want to learn how to code so I can kind of do some of this stuff for myself. And you are kind of seeing a whole emergence in different platforms that let you do stuff without coding in some ways. But I've always found as a designer that can be really frustrating when you have a specific way that you want to do something. That's why I think, yeah, learning how to code is interesting. Did he do this stuff himself? Because he also, I mean, is a very famous author. So I'm assuming he has a bit of money and can engage people to do this. I know nothing about him. But yes, it seems. 
No, it seemed like he did it himself from what I read. That's interesting. Yeah, no, he wrote this book called um, Mr. Penumbra's 24-Hour Bookstore, which is like a huge hit. So yeah, definitely. He's he's an interesting guy. Like, um, yeah, he's got his finger in lots of different pies. So I did see this as well. It was somewhere on, it was definitely going around Twitter the other week. But yeah, it's, it's like, again, I need to wait until three people recommend it. So Laura, now that's in your links, <laughs> I'm going to give it a closer look. Thank you. No worries. Okay, my next link is another discovery from Product Hunt. Again, usually something pops up from Product Hunt every couple of weeks that looks good. This is an app called Lowdown at getlowdown.com. And what it is, it's an automated newsletter for your Slack community. And basically what it does is pretty much what it says. And I found this really interesting where basically, because I'm part of lots of Slacks and we have this issue in our own Slack, especially with offices in two time zones where there can often be a lot of conversation happening that you just miss out on. So yeah, finding you know, the right place that comes go is interesting, but also for Corvid community, which is part of our Corvid offering. There's a lot of great conversation over there as well. And sometimes things do slip between the cracks, especially some people put things in threads, some people are just putting things in different channels or, you know, etc. So basically, the idea here is that it captures and I haven't gotten too far into it just yet. I'm just kind of looking at it, hence being in my open tabs. But it's basically a way that you kind of gather top posts and top information and then put it out as a newsletter. And I definitely find I don't know what it is about newsletters, but they're just in this format that feels a bit easier for me to read, like based on my own experience of the internet and how I read things. Well, it's curated. Exactly. It's just, it's curation. That's the key there. So yeah, I found this kind of really interesting. I'm going to check it out. Definitely might consider implementing it for Corvid, but at the same time, it's like, it's one of those things where it feels so dangerous where that, I mean, Slack could just implement this feature in a second, you know? It must be so hard, like being a developer, coming up with these new ideas, especially working that are involved kind of with other platforms and putting all this energy into doing something. You could say this app is very kind of similar to what the guy we were talking about previously has developed. But yeah, it's definitely something I'm going to be looking at. Laura, can you think of a situation like, would you read newsletters of your Slacks or does that defeat the purpose of actually being on the Slack? Well, look, I'm part of a lot of Slack groups, but there's one I can think of that perhaps I would use this for. And that's just because there are, there's literally like hundreds of people in it and hundreds of channels and therefore, you know, thousands of conversations happening each week. So perhaps for that, it could be good to have a weekly roundup of the top posts because it's impossible to keep up with them all. But that said, I've kind of, I feel like I've expended this sort of concerted effort to try and train myself to be okay with the fact that I won't be across everything that happens on Slack. I guess when it's a work thing, it's a bit different when you actually have to be in on top of important information. But for one that's more just kind of like social and just interesting links and fun stuff, I think it's fine to not see it all. And I don't really want to force myself to. And I just, you know, when I'm there in real time, amazing. And when I'm not, I'm not. Fair enough. Fair enough. Again, links to all the things we talk about are going to be in our show notes and our newsletter that we send out every week. We're not going to go into all of them here. But yeah, if you want those, that's where you get them. Laura, what do you got next for us? Okay. So, I can't help. I think like every single week now I'm bringing a ridiculous thing that I want to purchase because there are just so many. And I know I make fun of you for it so much, but I'm exactly the same and it kills me. But Jeremy, I don't know if you looked at this. This is a thing. Oh my God. Yes. It's so cool. (laughs) It's so good. So this is a thing called the Roto Farm by a company called Base, B-A-C-E. And (laughs) so I got, it's very hard to explain over audio, but basically they call it a revolution in indoor gardening. Apparently it's inspired by NASA research, (laughs) which I mean, you can sort of say that about anything, but it looks like a fan almost like a round kind of desk fan and then inside it grows plants all around the kind of inside edge so they sort of all face 
inwards. And according to them, it, it rotates a precise 360 degrees every 46 minutes. And because crops rotate, they spend time upside down, eliminating the growth restricting force of gravity, which I never knew was an issue. But just the pictures look amazing and like the video and everything. And basically the whole idea is that you can grow herbs and vegetables and other leafy greens and flowers and apparently marijuana too in this roto farm. And it's like totally hydroponic. And I mean, look, I'm guessing it's super unnecessary, but it's so freaking cool. I want one so bad. I signed up to hear more because there's, I don't know, there's this like Facebook group about it and supposedly you like sign up and you get a discount when they start selling them and, but they're going to sell for like $500, but I think I'm going to invest in one. What do you think about this, Jeremy? No, this has Woolup written all over it. And I know we kind of, <laughs> we, we, we touched on the Woolup travel pillow briefly on this and I might just kind of elaborate here. So it's a bit of a thing now, like there are a lot of them, but this was maybe five or six years ago when I saw this travel pillow called the Woolup, which is kind of just basically something you inflate and put your head and arms into to be more comfortable on a plane. And when it arrived, it was just the most hilarious, <laughs> bad thing that just was, was I mean, it was just so bad in so many ways. And I just look at this. I mean, it's so, so pretty as a piece of Photoshop. It's so but like, pretty. Look, I would love to be proved wrong. And the, the fact that, like, you know, getting people Jeremy, to grow their own food or getting it kind has of... sun plus technology that mimics the color emission of sunlight and boosts the purple and red tones for optimum plant health and growth speed. <laughs> You know that when this arrives, it's going to be such a disaster. And I want to see the pictures of what it ends up looking like. I can't um, wait. I can't wait. Although I did just buy an Australian company's version. doesn't rotate or anything, but just one of those like cool little desktop farms. Because I've always wanted one of the smart grow, the click and grow ones that they sell in the US, but you can't get them here. And it's just impossible to get it shipped here. And so I bought a kind of Australian version one that was on sale for 70 bucks the other day. And we'll see how that goes. I'll keep you posted. Oh my God, please do. But yeah, thank you. This has been, I don't know, what does it say about us that this has been all up in my Instagram feed as well? Like, you know, all my sponsored posts. It's hilarious. Anyway, speaking of unanswerable questions, the next thing for me is one of these kind of recaps that the site Gizmodo has been doing. Gizmodo is such a funny site. I've been reading it since it's kind of originally come out and like it has gone through so many iterations, been bought, Mm. you know, it was originally its own site and then it was part of Gawker and then everything was sold, resold. It's part of Pedestrian now for some reason. Really? And they do some, I think so, yeah. They do some really weird content. Like you would think it's just kind of for tech and gizmos and stuff, but then like as of a few years ago, then they cover a lot of stuff about climate change and it's often like very alarmist in some ways, which isn't my thing. But one series that they do do is ask these like deep questions and then have a series of experts answer them. I'm not sure if this is kind of maybe syndicated from somewhere else, but I really like it. The one that I'm working my way through at the moment is called Why Does Time Slow Down and Speed Up, which is something that I found, especially coming back of the holiday, like some days I would just have days like where especially when things are so busy in the office, like I don't know if you've ever felt this, but it's like the whole day just comes and goes. And it's like that. Mm-hmm. I feel like I don't even know what happens. I get to work and then all of a sudden I'm leaving. It feels like I've been shot out of a cannon. And I, it's really <laughs> interesting thinking about this in the perspective of of parenting. And one of the things that I read here as well, which I never really considered is how, I guess, your framework of how time actually subjectively feels obviously will change the older you get. So like when you are a month old, you've only experienced a month of time. Therefore, everything will feel really long. But when you've lived for 40 years and, you know, you have so much more to kind of draw on. So obviously things are going to feel like they're moving a lot quicker. And that wow, just makes time a lot must of- go so quickly for you, Jeremy. 
you know, I love the jibes at my age, you know, it's something I'm very <laughs> sensitive about. And so I'm happy for that button to be pushed. But yeah, like time is a very weird thing to think about and kind of get into. And so I love sites like this, even though they're very kind of mainstream going to answer these deep questions. And I love that they sprinkle all this other stuff, like throughout all their gadgets and gizmos coverage. And again, another reason that RSS is great, because you can just kind of pick it out when it comes. But yeah, highly recommend this one. Laura, what do you have next? Well, speaking of pedestrian, I still, I didn't realize that Gizmodo and Pedestrian were linked and I'm going to have to look into that. But this is a, another thing for Pedestrian, which the title really tells you everything you need to know. It says, this guy spent 18 months perfecting roast potatoes and you bet your golden ass we have the recipe. And it's basically just this bro who decided, in his words, he wanted to kind of create the world's crispiest, crunchiest, cost-effective roast potato. And he says, you go to the shops and you buy all these bloody ingredients that are rare and hard to find and you end up spending a hundred bucks on dinner. What I wanted to do was roast potatoes for the people. And he certainly did. He, after 18 months of testing all sorts of ingredients and techniques through blind tests and bite tests, uh, he's come up with what he thinks is the ultimate recipe. And I've done some of this research myself as well. And my favorite recipe is very similar to his. So I think this is a pretty good starting place for anyone who wants simple, really good, really crispy roast potatoes. So highly recommend. Man, roast potatoes are so hard. They take so long, but they're so no, good. They do you don't. do the thing where you kind of like shake them up in the bowl to get like that yes. little kind of crispy? Yeah, that's oh, that's key. Anyway, that is definitely the content that people are coming to this podcast for in case oh. you wanted to, you know. What do we say what's... that we're like looking at the <laughs> issues and happenings of the creative industry? <laughs> I reckon that fits within that. Okay, well, I will bring us a bit more on topic or at least on topic for, yeah, the art industry, which is, I think, probably will be the best ad campaign of the decade if we make it for the next 10 years. But anyway, this is the Moldy Whopper. And this is just kind of a bit of an overview from Campaign Brief, our kind of local Australian ad news site, actually linking to an article from another site called Little Black Book. So in case you haven't seen it, basically, this is interesting. I don't really understand how this works, but apparently three ad agencies have been pitching this idea over the past three years, publicists in Spain, Ingo in Sweden, and David in Miami. And basically, they created this campaign that sees a Whopper go putrid over 30 days. There's a time-lapse video and some amazing close-up photography. And yeah, I mean, the proposition of the ad is basically that Burger King does not use preservatives in their food. And so I think they're kind of playing off an existing thing. I don't remember where it happened, but somebody did a similar thing for a Big Mac and basically showed that, okay, after three years, the Big Mac still looks the same and our food is real and whatever. There used to be a live stream of a guy who had a like a Big Mac in a glass case somewhere in like Iceland or something. And you could literally go on the internet and look at this Big Mac that had been there for like 15 years and it looked identical. But then recently there was also a story of a guy who found a, I don't know how this happened and I have so many more questions, but he like found a cheeseburger in an old coat pocket from like 10 years ago and it's perfect. Amazing. Amazing. Well, I mean, yeah, this ad is really amazing. It's probably the best thing I've seen in a long time. It definitely got me looking. It was, I love the chatter on Twitter that was happening, like when <laughs> it was kind of hitting. It's funny, I was looking at the Rotofarm link and it's, I don't know, like I, I can't look at anything organic now without getting a bit grossed out and just kind of thinking of all the mold and everything like from <laughs> the close-up photography. But it's such an amazing use. I mean, the way they've used photography in capturing the details well is phenomenal. I don't know who the photographer was, but I mean, it definitely definitely gets the message across. It definitely gets eyeballs on it. I yeah, mean, I mean, I don't know. the debate though, like on Twitter and stuff has been whether, like, yes, it's it's clever to show that they don't use artificial ingredients in the way that, you know, Maccas or other competitors might that, you know, keeps it, it is creepy to think about putting that stuff in your body. But also once a customer has seen your 
product covered in mold and bacteria like does that really inspire you to go and buy that burger i don't know it is really interesting i think that it's so tricky to look at advertising from that perspective when you work in advertising. I yeah. think, you know, when I'm looking at I'm thinking about, okay, the effectiveness of the ad, are people kind of thinking about it? Are people talking about Burger King? It's like, are people kind of engaged with the brand in that way? And I think definitely, and surely there must be someone who's made a better point that can kind of link those two things to people actually buying things. I don't know. I actually just recently went to Hungry Jack's, as it's called here, for the first time in ages because they got the Rebel Whopper, which is kind of their plant-based burger, mm. which is actually really good. I mean, I'm really, really into it. So I mean, like something like that works a lot more for me. But I think there is, yeah, just in general, what it's kind of doing to Burger King's image in that regard in terms of, I guess, just trying to position them at a certain place like in the market. And yeah, and separating them exactly from that fast food segment that is definitely not experiencing any kind of ups right now. I just like the idea that even though it is a come and go in a flash, the idea that kind of a single advertising idea can unite people and have people talking about one thing for a period of time. I just thought it was It's really interesting cool. you say that, though, because I feel like these days, even like the most incredible bits of creative or the most amazing scientific discovery, whatever it might be, is out of the news cycle in like four minutes. <laughs> you know, it's like it's so rare these days that something, one thing can actually hold people's attention for more than a few short moments. Speaking of which, take us to our next tab, Lara. I find it so funny that the two of us chose mold-related content this week. This is nothing to do with the creative industries. I just thought it was like crazy and I wanted to talk about it. And it's such a clever classroom experiment. So this is a teacher in the US with her primary school classroom. She did this experiment to kind of show off the importance of hand washing now that it's coming into flu season over there. And basically, oh man, it's so gross, but so cool still. I wish I had teachers who did this stuff. What they did is they took like slices of fresh bread and they touched them. So, and then they put them in Ziploc bags. So they did one slice of bread that they didn't touch and they put it straight into a Ziploc bag. They did another slice of bread with unwashed hands that they kind of rubbed their hands on it, put it in the Ziploc bag. Another one where they had used hand sanitizer and another one where they'd washed their hands with warm water and soap. And then lastly, they did one where they rubbed the bread all over their like classroom Chromebook computers mm. and they let them just sort of sit and see what happened. And it's really, really crazy and cool to see how the pieces of bread evolved over a few weeks. And the one, as you can imagine, the one that wasn't touched at all looks pretty much perfect. The one where they wash their hands with soap and water also looks pretty much perfect. And then the hand sanitizer one comes in sort of second. There is a spot that is a bit moldy. The ones that were done with dirty hands and especially the ones that were rubbed on the Chromebooks are poor. Cool proper proper science <laughs> experiment green fluffy moldy but i thought it was such a cool way to like clearly illustrate to children how important it is because it's hard to understand why i imagine as a kid why you need to wash your hands after you've gone to the bathroom or if you're about to have food or you've got a cold or whatever and this is a really cool way to illustrate it maybe it's something parents can do at home with their kids Oh my God, so all over. I mean, we are definitely struggling with this with our kids at the moment, getting them to mm -hmm. wash. And it's oh, so gross. Oh my God, do um, the bread experiment. I definitely think it's going to be part of this. Actually, reminds me of something else I saw on another Slack group, which is where I think a mom was having trouble getting one of their kids to shower before bed and took a picture of them sleeping and then photoshopped cockroaches all over <gasps> the kid's sleeping body. Oh and my God. The, kid the next morning. <laughs> oh and God. apparently they were, yeah, showering just kind of nonstop since then. That's I mean, I. Maybe a bit of 
I don't know. I think that is creative parenting 101. So, I, but that's the thing. I think you know, kids like you need to see it and make it real for yourself. So, yeah, I definitely yeah, appreciate this. Yeah, they can't conceptualize and, what bacteria is, or you know, what that does to them. Yeah, but I think this just shows the power again. Like, I don't want to get too deep, but like, yeah, the power of design and visual thinking, whether it's kind of through advertising or graphic design or illustration, it's like these things. Like, visuals can connect you so much more with, I guess, the importance of some of these things. And I, mm. especially, I'm seeing kind of a lot of with coronavirus as well. It's like all about washing your hands. And I've seen some amazing guides, like visual guides in terms of how to wash your hands mm. and kind of where the nooks are that you don't get. And I definitely have seen myself now wash my hands a bit differently because of these guides that I have seen. So yeah, I'm really into mm. this type of education. So yeah, thanks for bringing this one to us. Now I'm going to round out with my last link of the week. And this is again, advertising related. I am still working through the Super Bowl ads, like the best of, I mean, there were so many. I don't know. It was a weird crop of them this year. You've probably seen some of like the Bill Murray recreating his kind of Groundhog Day scene. There's a lot of kind of ignored every single one this year. It's the first year I've ever done that. Every single one. Yeah. I mean, this is our, I guess, the big thing for our industry where they bring out all the big guns. I just decided I didn't care anymore. Fair enough. Well, yeah, it can be a bit much at times. I, this is Adobe's doing an ad. Like They must be raking kind of so much money. And good on them. For all the years that we've hired at Adobe Software, they deserve <laughs> to have a bit of... Oh, yeah, they're know. getting it all back with their Creative Cloud fees. Yeah. So they did this ad. Well, Buck did this ad. So Buck, the amazing design animation studio. And it's just, I mean, this ad is, I don't even know how to kind of describe it, but it's basically just this cavalcade and like assault of just all the output that people can make through, you know, Adobe's products. It's set to a cover of Pure Imagination, the Willy Wonka song. And it was done by Goodby Silverstein and Partners from San Francisco. And I think the most impressive thing is not the ad itself. So there's two ads. There's one actual 60 second ad, which is definitely kind of worth a look. But then there's another film that they did, which is around three and a half minutes, which is just the credits. And this is just amazing to kind of watch. Mm. And it's also just, you know, I guess that's what's so interesting about Super Bowl ads as well. And like you have this gulf now between these pieces, which are, you know, only come out once a year, but they have the same amount of crew and everything just like as big as a movie. Sometimes the budgets, you know, actually kind of correspond to just as much of them. But yeah, I just like look at this from my perspective as a producer and kind of thinking about Buck putting this together. And like, I'm just kind of in awe of Buck's work in so many ways. It's just, oh my God, so amazing. But yeah, just thinking about how a producer, even a production team would have gotten everything involved. I mean, you've got Shepard Ferry, you've got Billie Eilish, you've got just- I saw Dumb Ways to Die made a little feature in there. Dumb Ways to Die. There's, yeah, some Jackie Winter artists are kind of sprinkled throughout some of things that they've done, but it's just such a mammoth achievement. And I just kind of think it's, it's just like, if you're interested in production or kind of just like thinking about how something like this comes together, I can't imagine all the negotiations, all the NDAs, like working together with other competing businesses as well. Like it's a really amazing feat. I think that this was put together because it would have required so much cooperation, collaboration, and money as well. I just think it's a great. And it features over one thousand artists in the actual in the sixty second piece, which is really cool. It is really amazing. I mean, yeah, Laura, did you get a chance to look at it in full? I did. I did watch this because you put it in your in your links for this week, so I did catch this one, and it's it's beautiful. And it's like I think the concept of showing all the things you can make with Photoshop is not anything new, but it is done really beautifully. And also, I guess the scope of what you can create with these tools does grow each year or at least each, you know, five years or whatever. And yeah, it's still, it's an idea that's pretty timeless. It's really beautiful. But I agree that the credits is actually almost a more interesting piece just to show how many people have been able to do such different things with this tool. Awesome. Laura, take us home with your last link of the week. Okay, this is short, 
it's definitely not related to the creative industries, but it's one of the best things I discovered this week. And I feel like some people know this, but a lot of people don't. And so I'm just going to put it out there as a PSA for anyone listening in Australia. Did you know, Jeremy, that plants at Bunnings, all plants that you buy from Bunnings are guaranteed for 12 months. So like if you kill it, like fully guaranteed. Yes. If you're not totally happy, if you kill it, whatever happens, it dies. You can just bring the plant back as long as you have the receipt and they will refund you. And I was very incredulous about this. And I went on, like my link this week is their returns policy, but someone was telling me, and a few people told me that they've done it. And you just got to start keeping your receipts. And I've never, I always thought Bunnings plants are the best plants, but the fact that they're 100% guaranteed for 12 months, in which time I will absolutely kill them. I'm like, I can just buy new plants every year and bring them back. It's such, it's amazing. And I think it's a real good life loophole. I'm absolutely flabbergasted by this. I, and so, yeah, if any international listeners are out there, Bunnings is kind of like our big Home Depot or kind of like it's like yeah. a big hardware store chain. I mean, this is just kind of one of those weird things. Like, I don't remember which company. It's like LLB or something. LLB, you know, they yeah. will repair or take returns on anything for the lifetime of that. Like, I don't know if it's, is this kind of one of these potential marketing thing? Or it's like, are they doing something evil and genetic with their plants? But that they means they won't die. They don't seem to publicize it much. And they definitely are not doing anything. They might be doing evil things, not that I know of, but they're definitely not doing anything to the plants so they won't die because I've killed many Bunnings plants. Yeah, I can tell you they're easy to easy to kill. But I just think this is awesome and I think people should know about it. I'm absolutely fascinated. Thank you for bringing that to our attention, Lara. Anytime, Jeremy. And I think we'll wrap up from here. But before we go, it is time for Thumbs Up, Thumbs Down, Shaka, the time we dedicate each week to just give a bit of something extra because it's in our newsletter template and we kind of have to do it. And we generally are people have things to talk about. So, Laura, what do you have for us this week? you have a thumbs up, thumbs down, Shaka? What do you got? You're so sour on this section, but I like this section. It just gives me a really good chance to kind of complain a bit. And this week, I want to complain about the price of rugs. I just am blown away by how expensive rugs are. This is a like bit of life that I've somehow avoided until now. I'm trying to buy a rug and I, in my head, I get it for something that's like this ancient hand-loomed Persian rug or something, right? But so many rugs are essentially just a slab of carpet and it doesn't cost you that much to buy a slab of carpet. So why does it cost me that much to buy one that has seams on it and is meant to be a rug? I literally cannot comprehend why rugs are so expensive. And I would like someone to explain it to me. Jeremy, do you have any insight into this? I imagine you've bought some expensive rugs in your time. I have bought some rugs in my time. And I don't know, like, I th- this is, again, a deep question. Like, you could say, why aren't rugs more expensive? I mean, yes. Hand, no, hand I would never rugs- say that. <laughs> I mean, I think in general, my take is that the machinery to make like anything like once you're doing anything kind of big, the machinery required to do that is also big and very expensive. So I think that's one bit of it. But like, I don't know, like I think in general, like a lot of homewares are a bit too cheap and you have to wonder how and where are things being made and produced. Like if you especially if you look at something like Ikea, like a lot of their higher price items kind of are the rugs because they are actually hand done. So I don't know the technique in terms of making rugs. I think there is a lot of handwork still involved, even if there is machinery (sighs) in some regards. Someone needs to invent a good machinery kind of process for this and sell them off cheap (laughs) because I want them. And it just, I don't know, I just think they have such little use. They just sit on the floor. Like I refuse to spend more on a rug than I did on my sofas. And that's proving to be really difficult. 
Lara, rugs tie the room together. Oh, God, I can't stand this. What have you got this week? Well, I don't, you know, this is something that just kind of recently popped up, and this is definitely a shocker for me. I mean, this would have been one of my open tabs because it wasn't tab. I didn't, didn't kind of know where to put it. But basically, I got a referral to talk to somebody um, to get a quote for some consulting work, and I got like a really interesting auto reply. And I'm used to like, I love auto replies. I get them all the time. Like whenever we send out Creative Mornings invites, like, I always get like 100 auto replies. I'm always interested to read the things that people say, like if they're away or kind of not working at a certain place. But Some this people was a do it really and, well. Some people do do it well. Sometimes I read them, I'm like, oh, this is just obnoxious and like I hate it. It's like, mm-hmm. <laughs> it's, you know, in terms of like whatever, like they're bragging about like whatever holiday they're on or kind of like some new thing they're trying. Anyway, but this one I thought was really interesting. The reason it's a shocker for me is like I don't really know what to think about it. I kind of think it's amazing. And basically, I'll just quote some without identifying the person here. It says, hello, I have wonderful news. Blank is closed for our annual vacation. This means your email has been gloriously and permanently deleted. You can resend it when blank reopens on blank date. And then there's some other kind of details before. But like, I just thought like this was such a great move. And like, I know for me, especially one thing that I really have a hard time with is going on holiday, then coming back to this weeks of emails. And then like, it can be days before I feel like I've caught up and all the effects of the holiday are just kind of immediately erased. So I kind of love this idea, like, you know, treating your email like a store in some ways, or like, you know, if you're running a store and you're going on holiday, you're shutting the store down. If people want something from the store, they got to come back when you're open. You know, it's not like, you know, people can just kind of come in or queue up and wait. I mean, they could queue if they want. But anyway, I just thought this was a really interesting idea. So it's really got me thinking. So what did I do as soon as I received this? Like, I just put a reminder in my calendar to resend this email on that date, like I would do if I had any other kind of appointment some way. So I think this concept of treating people's time and email with a bit more respect like this, I think is great. So definitely my shocker for the week. I'm interested by it. My concern is more that I couldn't actually put it into practice because there are some emails I do want while I'm away. Like I still use my email for like personal stuff while I'm away. And so I wouldn't want my email to be automatically deleting everything that comes through. But here's the thing. I mean, who knows if the emails are actually deleted, but even if they aren't, like the expectation has been set by kind of sending that, Mm. that they have been deleted. So I wouldn't be offended if I didn't hear back from this person, which I think is, you know, it's a great production lesson right there. I really love it. This has really impressed me for this person. And I hope I get to work with them when they come back. Mm. That's it for the week. Laura, thank you so much again. Thank you. I'm Jeremy Wartman. She's Laura Chan Baker, and this has been Jackie Winter Gives You the Business. Our theme music is by totally unrelated to our company, Melbourne-based musician Jackie Winter. You can check out his stuff on soundcloud.com slash Jackie Winter. And if you want more episodes, archives of all of our shows can be downloaded at JackieWinter.GivesYouThe.Biz. To receive beautiful artwork, the links to all of our open tabs and updates on all things Jackie Winter in one neat little package, you can sign up to our newsletter at JWG.Is slash newslettering. Again, that's JWG.Is slash newslettering. You can also find us at Jackie Winter. That's Jackie with a Y. Winter like the season, and you can contact us at podcast at jackiewinter.com. If you want to hear more about Laura, you can follow her on Instagram at Laura underscore high res tiff or at Laura Chan Baker. That's one word, Laura Chan Baker on Twitter. Remember, this is an enhanced podcast. If you listen to this using a supported player, you'll be able to see any relevant visual content as we wrap it on. And if you work for an advertising agency or design studio and are interested in our live extended version of Open Tabs, be sure to check out opentabs.rodeo for more info. Thanks for listening. Catch you next week. Bye bye. It's